Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show, giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program, featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Welcome listeners to another episode of Brainwaves. We are broadcasting on 8.55am on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Kiara and interviewing today is Terry and Serena. On today's show we have Matthew Johnstone. Matthew is an author, illustrator, ambassador and creative director at the Black Dog Institute in New South Wales. Thank you so much for coming on the show Matthew and taking the time to chat with us today. Take it away, My guys. pleasure. Hi, Matthew. This is Terry here. Uh, Hi, wel- Terry. Welcome uh, to our Brainwaves program. On, Thank you. On your website, uh, matthewjohnston.com.au, you mentioned that finding flow is a really key motivator in your life. How did you find your flow and what has that meant in terms of changes to your life? Well, my, just to give you a little background, my in a former life, I used to be uh, creative advertising. And um, if you could see a picture of me, my, my hair is uh, silver, like <laughs> verging on white. And I really, truly believe that a lot of that uh, grey hair came from having too much stress in my life. Right. Not really taking care of myself and um, burning the candle at both ends. And uh, I just think now it's taken me a long time. I think, you know, you've, you've got to repeat lessons until you actually learn them. Yes. And I was just having a lot of stress. I was falling over a lot, you know, mentally and physically. And and really, when I talk about flow, I talk about the things that make my mind and my heart sing, you know, that, that don't really feel like work, uh, that in many ways, uh, you know, enjoyable, uh, don't feel so, uh, you know, verging on effortless, you know, because I really yes. believe that when you're in flow and when you're really enjoying something, um, you know, it, it's like riding a bicycle with the wind behind your back. Yes, and you're doing it from the perspective of being self-employed. You don't have too many other people demanding things from you in that situation. Just myself. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Which, which you know, which is you know, I, I don't always get it right, and I still do get stressed out. So, as, as I always like to say, I don't have anything stressed. I'm definitely a work in progress, but I most definitely have a much better understanding of what makes me tick and what makes me happy and what keeps me calm. Fantastic, Matthew. Thanks. Um, now, okay. to, when you're a bit more stressed with work and things, uh, Matthew, the yes. term "black dog" was famously used by Sir Winston Churchill to describe yes. his struggle with depression. Why did the concept of a black dog res- resonate so strongly with you in relation to your own struggles? Well, it's interesting because the, the, the term black dog has actually been around since ancient times. And, and you know, I, I didn't really understand it until I heard about Winston Churchill and until I actually heard about the Black Dog Institute in Sydney. And, uh, and, and one or two people have said to me, you know, what the hell have you got against black dogs? And, and I, 
I've got to say, I love dogs. I've got a dog sitting right at my feet right now, and her name's Cookie. Um, but I do believe that, you know, the metaphor, I'm, I'm a very big believer of stories and metaphors, and I think the metaphor of a dog, uh, a black dog in particular, is, is a good one because it is something that is outside of our control, outside of ourselves, that we have temporarily perhaps lost control of. And this black dog needs to be embraced, it needs to be understood, it needs to be disciplined, it needs to be trained, possibly in new ways, and uh, God forbid, even loved. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think you know, when it comes to our difficulties and our pain and our melancholy or whatever it is, you know, we tend to run from it. And very rarely do we actually try to really understand what's going on and try to embrace it. And I just think, you know, the metaphor of the dog, you know, it just seems to work. You know, when you try to talk about things that are going on in our minds, it's a lot more abstract. We can't actually see it. We can't actually touch it. But everyone understands a dog. And just like a black dog of depression can be incredibly faithful. And if you're not taking care of it, it will literally dog you, you know, for the mm. rest of your life. So, yeah. Um, you're now involved with the Black Dog Institute. What yes. is the Black Dog Institute and what does your role there entail? Well, the first thing I've got to state is that I didn't start it. <laughs> it's not my fault. And basically, the, it was uh, started by a wonderful man by the name of Professor Gordon Parker. And it is part of the UNSW. And it's also on the grounds of the Prince of Wales Hospital. So it is a very, very, it's, it's a research facility, fundamentally, that specialises in everything from research, education, um, and treatment of all things of mood disorders, but mostly uh, bipolar and depression. And um, people have often said to me, isn't it depressing working there? And, and I have to say, it's actually an amazingly inspiring place because it's just full of incredibly bright, academic, amazing young people, researchers, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, um, you know, and, and really... When you're talking about depression, you're talking about happiness and you're talking about well-being and, and, and how we can maintain these things and how we can best, best you know, look after ourselves. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's a surprising place. It, it's, it's very modern. It's full of light. It's full of art, um, you know, and full of like-minded souls. Sounds very appealing. Um, yeah. What's your actual role there? Well, I'm known as the doggy, which, <laughs> is, the, uh, which is the director of good ideas. And basically, I use my, you know, my formal life background and my skills in advertising, which is communicating simply and effectively. And basically, I help develop educational programs. Um, I make videos. I do some of their marketing as well. But um, yeah, primarily, I, I, I've just realized through using uh, visual imagery, you can really tackle uh, hard to talk about issues such as depression or bipolar or you know even understanding resilience or meditation through imagery and, and that's really my role there is just sort of trying to get through a lot of the academic stuff and translating that into simple to understand metaphors and, and images. Yeah and I think you do that particularly well um, in your books. Oh thank um, you. Where in your books you use, it's quite hard to explain to our listeners but you use drawings and very limited language to depict very complex emotions and ideas. Yes. Um, for example, in I Had a Black Dog, there is a simple text and an image of a man struggling to move forward. A big black dog is pulling him back by holding his shirt. I yep. think this powerfully depicts how draining depression is and, yep. and how so much, uh, you need so much strength to do even the simplest tasks. 
And yeah. I just, why do you think combining your pictures and words is such a potent and effective way to convey experiences with mental illness and on the flip side, resilience? Well, look, I think, um, you know, I really, because as I mentioned, I spent my, you know, 15 years working in advertising and advertising is all about, you know, it's about, you know, say, for example, if you have a billboard on the side of a freeway, you've really got two or three seconds to express an idea mm -hmm. and a thought, you know, and unless, you know, four or five words, you know, if you like, in a picture. And really, at the end of the day, um, I wanted to treat this book like I would a commercial. Mm -hmm. You know, I really wanted people to be able to pick up the book and look at it. And they didn't even have to read the words because that's the thing that I found. You know, most books on depression uh, that were quite often written by psychologists or psychiatrists, they were just so incredibly word heavy. And I think that when people are in a bad space, um, they don't have the, the capacity to actually take in a lot of information. So I just wanted people to be able to literally look at this book without even looking at the words and they could just get it. Yeah, and, um, I think sorry. you've done it very effectively. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and look, if ever if anyone out there wants to see it, if you go onto YouTube and Google, I had a black dog. Um, there's there's a clip that I did for the World Health Organization, and it's really just a little sort of moving um, encapsulation of the book. And if anyone wants to have a look at it, and it's uh, out there. But yeah, I, I just think um, you know, visual metaphors they do. I, I think they really cut the quick. Of the situation and you know a, a picture literally speaks a thousand words because you can just translate a lot more in a visual means than you can in a word and also it's actually been clinically proven that you know we actually retain um, more information i think it's between 70 90 percent more information through visual means so i'm, okay. I'm a really big fan of uh, pictures <laughs> i bet you are <laughs> Matthew, from um, would you mind for our viewers to explain um, sort of in detail a bit more your experience with depression? Sure. Look, at the, the one thing that I've realised about this thing we call depression, and, and I actually really dislike um, the term depression. I don't, I don't like many words around uh, mental illness because I, I think at the end of the day they're all labels. I, I prefer to call it human frailty. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, my experience is so much like so many other people's. And the one thing that I've realized is that although our backgrounds and our experiences and our lives may all be quite different, I've found generally through the people that I've spoken to and who've emailed me and written to me and I've met that the experience or the lyrics or the tune of depression is very similar for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just the simple things of uh, not enjoying you know, life as I used to, uh, withdrawing from all the things that I tended to enjoy doing and the people that I loved, um, losing my energy, becoming very overcome by, you know, uh, you know, no, no future ahead of me, um, being constantly tired, not being able to um, concentrate, um, all those sorts of things, you know, and, and quite often a lot of it also manifested not just in a mental sense but also in a physical sense, you know. Oh, definitely. Uh, uh, um, yeah, and, and I just think, you know, Gordon Parker, uh, Professor Gordon Parker always used to express it. He said, you know, it's really when the light or the sparkle goes from the eyes. And uh, it, it just, you know, it can manifest its ways in different ways. And, and unfortunately, my um, my biggest problem was that I had too much pride and too much bloody ego. And, um, and I put what I call a lot of energy into my show face. And my show face is what I wanted to present to the world. 
And, uh, and I've since realised that if I took half the energy to understanding what I was actually going through and actually trying to treat it and, and get on top of it, I would have healed myself in half the time. And unfortunately, because of my ego and my pride, um, there was a lot of collateral damage. You know, there was a lot of unnecessary breakups, probably in relationships. There was probably unnecessary leaving jobs, um, all those sorts of things, you know. And I just always say to people, you know, if you're in struggle, if you're struggling, if you're in difficulty, just please go and get help because there's no shame in doing so. The real only shame is that you're going to miss out on this thing we call life. I think life is generally pretty good. So you're were sort of saying the first few steps to overcoming uh, human frailty, um, yes. there to seek help and also, I guess, um, drop the facade that a lot of us wear in public. Yeah, look, I, I met a woman who was in banking once and she said to me, she said to me, do you know the people that I used to be the most jealous of? And I went, who? And she said it was the homeless. And she said, because I used to walk past them every morning on the way to my work and I just looked at them and it was a really sad statement to say that she said I'd look at them and they were just expressing themselves as they felt and I couldn't do that and all I wanted to do was lie on the floor and give up and it just, you know it just about bortismized when she said this but I kind of understood what she meant because sometimes putting on this show face or this sort of expression of how we think the world wants to see us is incredibly draining and incredibly exhausting if we're not feeling good within ourselves and in our mind. Um, so it, it, it is, uh, you know, just keeping that sort of, maintaining that sort of outward presence can be very, very, very exhausting. And I think in many ways it actually prolongs or can exacerbate uh, the illness, which is why it's so good to be able to learn from a to, to learn how to speak from a place of truth, perhaps learn how to be vulnerable, learn how to just put your cards on the table because the one thing that I realized in doing this book, especially I had a black dog, was that there wasn't one person that didn't get it. There wasn't one person who said, I don't understand it. Most people said, oh, that was my mum, that was my dad, that was my brother, that was my best friend. And, um, you know, it, it touches many of us, but we, you know, for some reason, stigma is still pretty prevalent in society. And, but I have to say it is getting better. Um, Hi, Matthew. It's Terry here. Um, hi, Terry. Hi. I was wanting to ask about your latest book, The Little Big Book of Resilience, and uh, wondering if you could define for us resilience and why you think it plays such a critical role in our well-being. Well, I think the word resilience actually came from, um, I'm just trying to remember the word, is it meta metaology, um, the science of metal, and it's really this idea of uh, flexibility. If you think about an aeroplane wing, Yep. how big it is and how flexible that is. And it's really the ability to bounce back to its natural form. And I think really resilience, I like to call it tough and up. And this is really what we can learn through adverse experiences in our lives and how we can actually grow from it. Not become tougher and harder yep. as a result of it, to actually become uh, more resilient, You know, being able to bounce back from uh, difficult situations. And really, you know, at the end of the day, life is full of what I call the hills and dales. You know, there's love and heartbreak. Yes. Um, there's success and failure. There's um, opportunity and, and disaster. There's, you know, employment and retrenchment, uh, uh, health and illness, and, and the big one of all, which is life and death. And we will face all those things at some stage in our lives. And really, how we respond to those situations is, is really up to us, you know. 
and uh, and whether we become hindered by them or crippled by them or whether we get knocked down by them or whether we try to pick ourselves up and to learn and to grow. And, and you know, and, and there's, there's real truth in that idea of, you know, out of bad comes something good, you know, if we're prepared to learn from it. Yes. And looking at your own life, um, can you identify the factors that enabled you to crawl out of your your well of depression and, you know, those resilience factors that help protect you to be able to move on and become well again? Yeah, look, there was a significant fork in the road. And, and look, I've got to say it didn't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, this has been an ongoing progress, you know, and I still have dips and falls and I still feel flat sometimes, but it's not nearly as bad as it used to be because I now have the tools uh, yeah. that I can reach into. But for me, um, I was living in New York. Um, I was a creative director in advertising and I was running huge accounts and I was traveling the world a lot, which all sounds very glamorous, but it wasn't because I was stressed out of my brain. Mm. And I was, I was also a, uh, I now realize that a chronic perfectionist. So whenever you're a perfectionist, <laughs> things tend to go wrong because uh, things are never as good as you want them to be. Yep. And you feel let down a lot of demand. You know, all that sort of boring stuff. And anyway, um, I was... At my wit's end, I've been suffering depression terribly and suppressing it and not telling anyone. Yeah. And uh, and then 9-11 happened, you know, when those guys yes. threw those plans into the World Trade Center. And I, I was standing uh, literally one block uh, from the Trade Center when it came down. Yeah. And I, I was covered from head to foot in ash. I glassed my hair and I saw a lot of people die. And we all know <clears throat> how bad that was and we all know how bad, you know, terrible things do happen. But the thing that those was my epiphany was the realization that life is fundamentally short yes we do not know what's around the corner <clears throat> and all those people in those planes and those buildings they want life mm. and family and stuff they want to achieve and it was just taken from them and i think i'd been suffering in silence uh, for so long uh, that i just realized that you know if, if i didn't do something about it it was going to get me yep and uh, and that's really how the black dog book came about. I went into work one afternoon and I sat down with my storyboard paper, which I'd you know pen TV commercials on, and um, and I just started writing it out. And it, it, I have to say, and it, it sounds stupid when I say this, but it literally wrote itself. It was the best uh, creativity I think I've ever done because mm. it combined what I did for a living, which was communicating simply and effectively yeah. with life experience, and it just sort of wrote itself. And then I got really scared and sat on it for about four years because I didn't know what to do with it. Can I ask, uh, Matthew, yeah. what were you hoping to achieve by writing the book? Was that for your own, um, for you to make sense of, of your own experience or was it to educate others? What What was the purpose? Oh, look, I read a book called um, Darkness Visible by William Styron. He wrote a film called Sophie's Choice amongst other books and movie screenplays. And look... You know, it was a miserable little book. Um, it was basically about his slight depression and, and how he ended up in hospital. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a happy ending. And it was the first book that I'd actually, and I'd written, read many books by psychologists and psychiatrists, and and, uh, and and I kind of understand, stood those books from one level, but I always kind of went, you know, I never got the actual personal experience. And when I read William Styron's book, it was like this revelation because I suddenly realized that I wasn't alone. And his little book absolutely nailed exactly how I'd been feeling. And that in itself was incredibly comforting that I wasn't alone. 
And that's really how I have that dog came about because I wanted to do the same for other people. But I also wanted to give it hope and to give it humour. And I think that's probably <clears throat> the big difference between the books. And um, you know, and that's the thing. I probably get an email or a letter every other day from people from all around the world because I think it's now in about 26 different countries. And just saying, you know, how it, it resonates with them or how it was their life and, and how, you know, as if I wrote the book about them. And, you know, it just goes back to that thing I was saying before about the tunes and the lyrics of, you know, this experience is, is very similar globally. Mm. Thank you. Fantastic. My pleasure. Um, going back to your little big book of resilience, yes. uh, you mention activities that people can practice to enhance their resilience. Yes. Can you share some of them with our listeners? Well, look, you know, there's no... Uh, the one thing that I've realised in this whole journey, there is no silver bullet, there's no magic pill. Um, really, it's a potpourri of many things. Mm. And I actually saw Martin Seligman speak uh, once, and he's the... You know, he's Professor Martin Seligman, and he basically uh, is the father of positive psychology. Yes. And he said, you know, to be honest with you, I don't really believe in happiness. You know, happiness is like a mercurial cat that will never come to you when you call it. Occasionally it lands in your lap unannounced, you know, and then it buggers off as quickly as it arrived. And I think, um, you know, and he said, I don't really believe in happiness because it's the one emotion that we humans actively seek, you know, and it's the one emotion that actively, you know, uh, gets away from us. And I think what he said, and I truly believe in, is he believes in well-being and wellness. And he admitted himself, he said, you know, I'm a depressive with well-being. You know, you can be a schizophrenic with well-being. You can be a paraplegic with well-being. You can have cancer and have well-being. And I think that's what I really strive for, is to just have uh, equal measure of well-being within my life. And, you know, for me, the cornerstones of my well-being really are meditation. Meditation and mindfulness is something that I try and practice every day. Um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, I tried meditation once and I couldn't sit still. I couldn't, you know, I felt like I had a beehive in my head. But really, it's, it's, it's like saying I went for a run and I came back and I wasn't fit. It's really a practice. And it's something that we just need to start yes. small and work our way up. And I can be absolute testament to it that it can make a profound change in your life. Um, it is. It, it's not rocket science. It, it is quite hard to quiet a mind. It's like turning off the tap, um, but it can have can make huge dividends. The other one for me is exercise. Um, I don't live at the gym. I don't run marathons. I don't swim motions. But you know, exercise is also the cornerstone of my uh, well-being as well. I try and exercise at least you know four to six times a week. Um, whether it's just taking the dog for a walk or whether it is going for the gym or going for a bike ride with my daughter, whatever it is, you know, yep. just getting the heart rate up. Um, diet's incredibly important. Uh, communication what, what, fundamentally. What, when you're saying diet, what, what yes. sort of things are you noting there? Well, just looking at what you're eating. You know, what, what people don't realise that what they eat has a profound effect on their emotional well-being. You know, sometimes people are wheat or dairy intolerant. They don't realise it and that can make them sluggish and yep. slow or sad. You know, too much sugar, you know, sugar works on our dopamine levels and it releases, you know, a reward system. And, and for every time you get a little high, you've got to pay for it. So, you know, it can create stress. It can create all sorts of myriads of problems. Um, so, you know, really people, um, you know, we all eat for different reasons. You know, some eat for comfort, some eat for control. And But I, I believe, you know, that when we eat a really good, healthy, balanced diet, again, it can make a profound effect on our own mental health and physical well-being. Fantastic. 
And and the other thing is I just think is communication, learning how to speak to someone, learning how to open up, learning how to say what's going on. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about putting it on social media or, yeah. or, or necessarily having to publish a book, but just being able to have the appropriate conversation with that circle of trust within in your life. Another Great. element of well-being that I think you've mentioned in the past is what you term recycling. Yes. Could you just explain that to our viewers a little bit? Well, look, I, yeah, look, I, I think recycling your experience um, into helping other people. Uh, I know that at the Black Dog Institute, we have a really big program of people with lived experience coming and volunteering and helping. And we've got people from high school kids right through to, you know, doctors. Uh, I think we've had a judge, um, you know, all sorts of, you know, corporate level people. And the one thing that we know for sure is that when people recycle their experience through their own lived experience into helping other people, it is one of the greatest ways uh, that you can help yourself. And I'm sure, you know, the work that you guys do helps so many people. And, and it's just, I don't know, it, it sort of gives purpose to your experience and, and um, gives air to it and you start meeting other people and, you, you know, that whole thing of you realise you're not alone, that it is a very shared and lived experience, you know, all those sorts of things, it's great. And I really believe that when you give of yourself in life, life just simply gives back. And that's, you know, that's just another little um, thing in that well-being roster, if you like. Great. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on all the great work that you guys do. Thank you. Wonderful. You've been listening to Brainwaves on 3CR. You can listen to podcasts of our show at brainwaves.org.au, the 3CR website, or download them from iTunes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.